Well, good morning, everybody. It's nice to be with you this morning. Um, it appears that uh, God is answering my kids' prayers and not my prayers because my voice is about to give out on me here. <laughs> and so um, <clears throat> you'll have to forgive my voice this morning. I'm going to do my best to make it through the message this morning, but it just kind of decided to, to take off on me uh, last night. And I thought, well, I could call one of the guys at work and see if they're willing to preach today, but I didn't think they would be too happy with me. So <laughs> here we are. Uh, we are going through our sermon series, uh, Ordinary Life, and we've been exploring literature. And Pastor Dave is away this week. He's on some, some vacation time. But if you remember, last week, Pastor Dave was talking to us about this, this tricky topic to navigate on friendship. And so it's great that the most experienced communicator that we have on staff chose to do the sermon on friendship last week because it's so difficult and leave the incredibly easy topic for me on marriage and Song of Songs, right? I mean, so no big deal. Lord knows how deeply private the conversation on friendship is, right? I'm just teasing. I picked it. I picked it. <laughs> hey, if you're new to church and you, uh, or you maybe haven't had a chance to read through the whole Bible... Uh, the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, as some call it, is a collection of poetry that we see in the Old Testament. And this book primarily talks about love. But it isn't just any love. It talks about romantic love and even sexual desire. But the book is done in such a way that we can talk about it at church. And there is some value for us, I think, as we go through it. And we're going to look at some of that today. When we were titling this sermon series, Ordinary Life, uh, we recognized that falling in love and, and getting married and all the things that come with being married are just a part of ordinary life. But we also wanted to acknowledge, or also would acknowledge that there are extraordinary things in love. Love is not normal. Love is this incredibly, incredible thing that we experience as humans. And as the author of the Bible Project puts it, he says, love is a gift from God to all of us that is both transcendent and mysterious. There is something that we just can't explain about love. Love is one of the most amazing and powerful emotions that we feel, and it's one of the most or the strongest bonds um, that we have in relationship. It was in the 13th century that the Roman Emperor Frederick II thought that he should conduct an experiment called the Language Deprivation Experiment. His goal in this experiment was to find out what language we spoke, like what the natural language of a human would be if they hadn't heard anything from their parents. And so he set out to, to do this. If there were no outside influences, would they speak their parents' native tongue or would they speak like Hebrew because that was God's chosen people, um, which would make sense because, you know, we're all created in the image of God. What was going to be our natural language? And so they took several children at birth and they raised them with no talking and no speaking and as little human interaction as possible because they didn't want to skew the results that the baby would overhear one of the nurses. So the babies were fed and then they were changed and then they were pretty much just left alone. Even when the nannies would come in to take care of them, they were told not to make eye contact with the children because they thought, well, maybe if they made eye contact, that would skew the result as well. So not even eye contact. And they had to be very careful about the noise that was happening around where the babies were being held because they didn't want them to experience any voices. 
Well, if you've heard of this story or this experiment before, then you know that this experiment ended in a horrible disaster because all of the babies died long before the experiment could be finished and before they could get the answer to the question about what our native language would be. However, this failed experiment revealed something amazing, an incredible result, because it showed us all how important love is to all of us. Those babies didn't die because of silence. They died because of a lack of intimacy and love in their lives. Love is a necessary part of the human experience. We were built to have it. We long for it. We want to experience it. Life or love for us is like breathing and eating and drinking. We aren't just physical beings. We have a soul. We were created in the image of God who incidentally we call love or has been described in the Bible as love. And so it's no surprise for us that love would be an incredibly important part of the human experience. You're just going to have to forgive me drinking a lot while I'm up here. <laughs> I've got to make it through, guys. Even if we don't have any recent experiences or experiments, I should say, that would teach us about love that are like the language deprivation experiment that we saw, we can for sure say, all of us here could agree, that there is absolutely, uh, uh, living without love is, is an utterly terrible experience to have. I, I loved my grandfather. You know, he was, a, he was a good man, but he was a stubborn old German farmer. And my grandfather and my grandmother, they lived out on a farm. And when it came time for them to move off the farm, because grandma couldn't take care of him anymore, he didn't want to leave. And so he kind of dug in his heels and he said, I'm going to stay on the farm. And so grandma ended up having to leave him after years. She couldn't take care of him because he couldn't barely take care of himself and the farm and, and all that goes into take caring, taking care of a big piece of land. She, she, so she ended up having to move closer to family that could help take care of her and give her a smaller place to live. But grandpa decided to stay out on the farm and he was a very lonely man for the remaining years of his life. And that farm, you know, as it wasn't cared for, it, it started to fall apart and, and uh, things started to rot and just not look good. And I can't th help but think of my grandfather sitting in his chair in the living room of his house day after day just watching television with no one to talk to and no one to care for him. Nobody looks at the situation of my grandfather or somebody in solitary confinement or an elderly person sitting in a nursing home with nobody to talk to and says, man, that's living. I can hardly wait to have that. That's not what people say. Life without love is best a miserable and lonely existence. And at worst, it actually means we could possibly die. So we're going to explore love a bit today in the context of the Song of Songs. In Genesis chapter 2, God does something amazing for the human race. And, and he creates this complementary partner for Adam in the form of woman. Eve, as she was called. And she is created in the image of God. And, and um, there were differences, though. When you, even though she was created in the image of God, and even though she is much like man, there were noticeable differences. 
Some of these differences would have been noticeable right away, and some of these differences would have been noticeable over time. It would have taken, taken time to understand that. For example, the physical differences between her and Adam would have been noticed right away. You know, like Adam would have looked at her and he'd been like, that is not what I look like when I look in the mirror. You know, and so much so, he appreciated what he saw so much that he broke into poetry at what God had given him to live with. And he says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, he says, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's poetry. And ladies, when a guy breaks out into poetry because he looks at you, you have made an impression on him. There would have been other differences, though, that came along, maybe more slowly. For example... They would have learned that they processed emotions differently. And I think that would have been a fun experience to have, right? Like, anyway, we won't get into that. They would, have, they would have also discovered that one of them was better at nurturing and raising children than the other. And of course, they would have discovered at some point along the road that one of them can actually grow a human being inside of their body. Like, that would have been something to discover, right? As, as they go about normal life, and Adam's like, you know, Eve, you're looking a little bit stretched around the midsection. Maybe it's time to lay off the legumes. You're looking a little gassy. And as the gas got worse and worse, at the end of nine months, it would have been like, oh, that's what that was all about, you know? It would have been quite shocking. So they would have learned these things different over time, differences over time. But it was in these complementary differences that God established the institution of marriage. It was a gift that he had given them so that they could experience love in a deeper and more significant way. And it was a gift that he gave them that was to point them to a greater love that was to exist with God. That is what marriage is all about. The Song of Songs is a blessing to us from God, and it's the Bible's further comment to us on the relationship and the love that exists between a man and a woman. If this was not in the Bible, then how would we know and what would we do with the passions and the desires that lie within us? We'd be left to navigate these incredible things on our own and society would try to speak into that. And we know from experience that that is not a good thing. So it's great that God would put something like the Song of Songs in the Bible for us to learn about intimacy and about love. We can learn and study this book uh, and look at it and know how God created us with deep passions. Those are from God. God did that on purpose. Those aren't dirty and bad and horrible emotions and horrible things to experience. God put desire and passions within us so it would draw us towards love. He wants us to seek it out. He wants us to explore it. Partly probably because he knows that we can't survive without it. The other part is because he wants us to be drawn into a deeper love with him. There is a tendency to shy away from studying types of books like this because of the intimate details of love that we find in them. Like I had a hard time finding good sources and good discussions on the Song of Songs because nobody wants to touch it. It's kind of like, if you read the Song of Songs, like you're a Christian pervert, right? But God put this in here for us to learn something about love. It's not like he put it in the Bible and he doesn't want us to read it. Like we go through Ecclesiastes and we're like, this is good. And we get to Song of Songs we're like, whoa, forget that. On to Isaiah. Like that's not what God wants us to do with this. He wants us to study this book because in it we can gain knowledge about something important. 
and that is love. As we approach this book, we need to remember that this book is first and foremost a book on romantic love. So that's the lens as we approach the Song of Songs. That's the lens that we need to view this book with. However, even though this is a book on romantic love, there is something that we can learn in here about other love as well, and certainly love for God. For example, the wisdom regarding love in this book points us to the loving experience that we can have with God. And so as we go through this today, we're certainly going to talk about the human component of love. But we're also going to have to keep in mind that the love that we are discussing here is going to point us to God. And we're going to draw some conclusions about that as we go through it. The author called this book Song of Songs. And that's a play on words. So ancient Hebrew writers used to do this to draw special significance to something. So it's like saying king of kings or lord of lords. This is the song of all songs. It's the best song that was ever written. And it's interesting that it's on love. Solomon wrote 1,005 songs during the course of his life. And it was widely accepted that he was one of the wisest people to have ever walked our planet. And we believe that Solomon probably wrote this book that we're studying today. And so as we look at the Song of Solomons, we are looking at the best song ever written by one of the wisest people to have ever walked the planet. So there's got to be something in this book that we can glean from it. Something that can teach us or something in there that we can, can give us wisdom and teach us about love as we study it. So let's dig in. We're not going to have time to go through the whole book. I'm just going to pull out some chunks and we're going to look at it. You're going to have to follow along in your Bible because I don't have the, the passages up on the screen because a lot of them are really long. But let's do a quick overview here. The Song of Songs is separated into different scenes. And there's three main voices that we hear throughout these scenes. There is a man and there is a woman. And then there is these friends that we hear from throughout it. The poem begins with a woman and a man talking about their love and desire for one another. And as the poem progresses, we see their courtship and we see their marriage. And then eventually we see the consummation of their marriage. And the poem finally kind of ends open-endedly. It's like this weird ending that, that doesn't end. But, but it, it's that way on purpose. Because the fact that it's open-ended kind of leads us to believe that, oh, like love is supposed to go on. Love is supposed to continue to grow. It's supposed to get deeper and we're supposed to uh, venture on in it. There's also this theme of purity that we see running through the book. It's this untainted picture of love. Um, and then we get this idea as we look at all these natural elements in the book. There's a garden imagery. There's, there's smells and there's scents and there's fountains. There's all this natural imagery. And it's meant to draw our attention to the Garden of Eden. As if to say that the love that we're going to read about in Song of Songs is like the purest love that a human could have. It's like the love that existed back in the Garden of Eden long before sin entered the world. This is what Adam and Eve would have experienced. And so as we look at this book, we're going to get this, this picture of kind of like what pure and healthy and good love would look like, or as good as it can get on earth. So as we look at this book, there are three pieces of wisdom that we're going to explore today that are going to teach us about love. And we see the first one right off the get-go here, right in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And I'm going to read you now poetry with this beautiful voice of mine. Here we go. <laughs> Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. 
for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. I think what we can see as we look at these verses right off the start, this is going to be an awkward day in church, right? Like this is just... No, but right off the get-go here, we see that desire is a part of love. Desire is a part of love. She is smitten with this guy, and she wants to be with him. And she's not saying to him, like, I want to be with you on Friday night. Let's make a plan to hang out. She's saying, I want to be with you in the biblical sense. And we all know what that means. What's amazing about this poem is that right off the start, it doesn't conform to our stereotypical ways of thinking about courtship and marriage, where the guy expresses his desire for the woman, and he chases after her, and eventually she, she breaks down, and, okay, fine, I'll marry you. You know, that's not what we see here. Here we see the woman is the leading voice in the story, and she is wearing her desire for this man on her sleeves. It doesn't matter that she's the woman. She desires this guy, and she is going to let him know it. And if we keep reading, we see that this, this relationship that is meant to kind of look like this pure relationship between a man and a woman, we see that in, in this relationship that, that both the husband and the wife are expressing desire for each other. It isn't one-sided. Desire is actually an important part of marriage. By expressing desire, we are drawn closer together, and the sense of oneness that we have for each other as we express desire is uh, deepened. Desire communicates, I want to be with you as much as you want to be with me. Now, we know there are times in relationships where this can be unbalanced, where our desire for one another isn't quite matching up. However, desire is an important part or component in relationships because it draws us closer together. There are um, husbands and wives. If your partner doesn't think that you want to be around them or that you don't want to be physically intimate or affectionate with them, how are they supposed to draw closer to you in relationship? They need to know that you want to spend time with them, that you desire to be physically intimate with them. Hanging out with them because you have to does not communicate love to your partner. It makes them feel unimportant and worthless. Having sex outside of, out of an obligation or worse, not having it at all, makes your partner feel undesirable. And there is no relationship out there where we get to grow deeper in partnership with one another and yet feel worthless and undesirable. A small side note here. As I was preparing for the sermon the other day, my son asked me, he heard me say the word sex, and he goes, he goes, Dad, he goes, why are they getting you to do a sermon on that not, not as bad as the other S word, S word? <laughs> and so now every time I say sex, I feel like I'm saying a bad word. <laughs> it's good. God created it. God's design is that we would desire one another. And that in desire for one another, that we would grow closer together. And as we grow closer together, oneness would be created and we would experience a deeper sense of fulfillment in our relationships. But it starts with desire. Does your partner know that you desire them? Ask them. See what they say. And if they don't feel like you desire them, 
then maybe it's time to make a few, few changes and communicate your affections with them. Work towards rekindling that desire for one another. For couples that are really stuck in this area, there is good wisdom in placing moments of, of intimacy on the calendar, both emotional and physical. That way you're not left wondering when that great next moment is going to come where you get to walk and have a talk with your partner and you can experience each other more on an emotional level and just share life with one another. Or you're not left wondering when that next S word encounter will come about. It's often the not knowing that causes uh, stress in relationships. So put it on the calendar. You can be spontaneous whenever you want, but at least when you see it on the calendar, you know, oh yeah, there's a time coming when we are going to experience this or we're going to spend time with each other like that. We also have a four-part study on the Discipleship Hub under the resource tab on our website. You just click on the sermon series graphic and you scroll down under Going Deeper and there you're going to find this study called The Crazy Cycle in Marriage. This is a four-part study that's going to help you understand and embrace the differences in your partner. Now, these are just ideas, and they're just tools to help you out. The important thing is, is that a couple, you come together, you understand this, and you start working on these things together. It's starting that makes the difference. Desire is also something that exists and needs to exist in our relationship with God. We know that God desires to be with us. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. And for those of us who accept the message of Jesus, he has given us his Holy Spirit to live within us so that we could have relationship with him. But we need to desire God as well. Otherwise, it's like the spouse in the relationship who has lost that desire for their partner. Oneness with God is deeply impacted by the desire that we have for him. You know, we can learn a lot about our desire for God as we study this poem, and then we compare our relationship with God to it. You know, do we have that same pull for God that this couple in this book is describing in their relationship, where, where God is everything to us, and we just can't wait to bask in his presence? If we don't have that, well, it's an indication that there's more left to explore and experience in our relationship with God. It's not something we have to feel bad about. It's an indication that, oh man, there is so much more to God's love than I'm allowing in right now. I need to work on my desire for God. You know that you are um, growing closer to God in oneness as your desire begins to increase for him. And as you are experiencing and thinking and acting more like God in your everyday life. The second piece of wisdom that we can glean from this book is that vulnerability is required for intimacy. And you're going to have to flip way over now to Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 10. And I'm going to read through several verses here. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garment is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruit, with henna and nard, nard and saffron. 
calamus and cinnamon with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a wellspring of flowing water, streaming down from Lebanon. Here she is saying that she is like, he is is saying she is like a garden for him, one with all this amazing stuff and the exotic plants and these great smells. And it's just a, a wonderful experience. That is who she is to him. But he's only allowed to experience it when the timing is right. She says back to him, awake north wind and come south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Here she's saying the time has come. The wedding day has arrived and she is now willing to open her garden so that he can walk through it, so he can experience it and that they can experience love together and be fulfilled together. And in verse 5, 1, we see, I have walked into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spices. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. The friends say, eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. It's interesting how imagery can make our minds go to certain places. I mean, these guys are just talking about a trip to the botanical gardens. But that's not what you guys were thinking, right? Guys, we're in church. Watch your minds. It's interesting how language can do that, right? We know this passage is talking about physical intimacy. It is not that veiled to us. And yet, as we study this chapter, we can see that as these two are being vulnerable with each other and sharing and experiencing different parts of the garden with one another, it leads to fulfillment and satisfaction. And in 5 verse 1b, we see, I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. This is the guy saying, he's saying, this is, this is satisfying to be with you. I am fulfilled by being in your presence. Vulnerability with each of them as they explored the garden created fulfillment. So what is intimacy? Well, the Oxford Dictionary says it is closeness, close familiarity, or friendship. And there are four ways that we categorize intimacy. There is emotional intimacy, which is where we draw close to another person as we share our emotions and our thoughts and our feelings with them. There's physical intimacy where we open up to open up ourselves to giving and receiving physical affection from someone else. There's spiritual intimacy where we open our hearts to God and maybe to someone else and, and we experience his presence. There's intellectual intimacy where we open up our thoughts and our skills and our intellect and we go brain to brain with somebody. But as we look at at intimacy at all of these levels, you will notice that it starts with openness and vulnerability. For example, when we are open uh, through prayer and devotion before God and maybe our partner, our hearts are rejuvenated and bound together with that person and we feel rejuvenated in our soul. When we are open about our ideas at work and we come together and we arrive at better conclusions, our team is brought together and closeness. And we arrive at a better better conclusion than we could have than if we had just sort of kept our ideas to ourselves. 
But all of this starts with openness and vulnerability. If you aren't willing to be vulnerable, you can't achieve the fulfillment that intimacy is meant to bring. The more that you hold back in vulnerability and openness, the less fulfilling our experience is going to be in relationships. Many years ago, I had a conversation with a young man who was having trouble in his marriage. He had just recently got married, and he was having trouble connecting with his wife. And as the two of us discussed the situation, it was really clear very quickly that the reason he was having trouble connecting with her is because he was keeping things from her. He had not been honest with her before they got married about his sexual past. And now that they were married, he was worried and he feared what would happen if he was open and honest with her. The secret weighed on this guy's heart like an anchor. And you could just see it in his eyes and you could just feel it as he talked about it. The closer she got to him and the the closer the relationship became, the more he feared that she would find out his secret. And so he had a choice. He could either tell her his secret and risk losing what they had or changing the relationship from what it was, or he could keep his secret, but never feel completely loved by her for the rest of their entire marriage. How can we uh, experience true and fulfilling intimacy when we're always thinking in the back of our mind, if they only knew who I really was, I don't think they would really love me. Being open is scary, but in order to experience intimacy and the fulfillment that is meant to come with intimacy, we need to be willing to be open. God created sex to be a picture of the road to intimacy and fulfillment. We know it doesn't always lead to intimacy and we know it doesn't always lead to fulfillment, but, we, but it was created as a reminder of it. Sex, if we look at it, is two people coming together, taking off all their clothes and exposing parts of themselves that they would never expose to anyone else. And in that vulnerability and being vulnerable with each other and in that vulnerability being accepted by the other person. And in being accepted, they draw closer to one another or as close to one another as two people can possibly get. Isn't that an amazing design? That's God's plan and masterful handiwork on display to teach us that vulnerability leads to greater intimacy and fulfillment. That's why God doesn't want us messing with sex and and the picture that he's created there and to cheapen it as society has done generation after generation after generation. It should come as no surprise to us then that this picture of intimacy isn't just meant to teach us something about a human man and a human woman in love. This is meant to show us what it takes to experience a greater intimacy with God in relationship with him. It starts with us being vulnerable with him, admitting our sinfulness before him and being vulnerable with him. We are then accepted by Jesus in our sinfulness and he is bringing us into a close and permanent and enduring and completely fulfilling relationship with God in the kingdom of heaven one day. This is why we see the language throughout the New Testament about us being in God and God being in us. As Jesus is saying goodbye to his disciples in John 14, 19, he says this. 
Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Jesus is saying that there is a relationship that exists out there that is so intimate. It is like being in the other person, connected to their heart. And that relationship exists in God. Sex between a husband and a wife is an earthly picture. It's a roadmap for us to the perfect intimacy that exists with God. And this leads us to the last piece of wisdom that we're going to look at in this book. And that is commitment is the foundation for love. As I was sharing earlier, and as we read in this book, we see that love is this incredibly powerful thing. And so in God's view, it needs to be experienced under the banner of commitment. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 8, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. And where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Love as it exists in God is so powerful that it will never fail. It endures all things and even the good things in life will pass away, but this love will beat them all out and it will stick around. So then love without commitment loses all its power. It becomes like everything else. If there is no commitment in love, in love it means that it can fail and it can end. But that's our view on love. That's a worldly view on love in our brokenness. But that's not the way God views love. God's love doesn't fail. And that's why he wants us to commit in love so that we can experience the power in love without the dangers of it. So commitment needs to be the foundation of love. Throughout the Song of Songs, as we go through it, we see this refrain it says, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. This is her warning other people. There is a time and a place for love between a man and a woman, but be careful. Be careful not to rush it. There are things that need to take place before love can happen. And that is commitment. When I was younger, I always let my heart get ahead of my age when it came to love. I thought I was going to marry every single girl that I dated. And since I started dating in preschool, like it was, <laughs> you can imagine there was some heartache along the road. <laughs> the last girl I dated broke my heart. And it sounds, it sounds uh, kind of funny, but it was an incredibly painful experience. And I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep for days. It, it messed me up. And it stung so bad, though, that it whipped me into shape when it came to dating. Because after that experience, I realized I don't want to go through that ever again. And so now I'm going to do things God's way. And the next girl I'm going to date, it's not going to be when I decide I'm going to marry her. It's going to be when God decides that I'm going to marry her. And then I will date her. It was going to be God's way and not mine moving forward. And praise the Lord, the next girl that I dated was indeed my wife. And I did do it the right way. The wisdom of this book would have taught me that it wasn't time to awaken love yet. I was in grade school most of the time. She was not going to be my wife. What was I thinking? 
But this refrain that we hear in this passage is meant to guide us to better decision-making than that when it comes to love. Because love is so powerful and it can harm us. Chapter 8, verses 6 and 7 says, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Because of the power of love, the woman is saying here, as she says, as she's saying, it's got to start with commitment. Place that seal on your heart. Write my name on that seal. Place that seal on your arm. If that seal isn't there, then we run the risk of being hurt by love. It burns like fire. Many waters cannot quench it. When there is no commitment in love, it, there can be pain in it. It's like getting burned in a fire. It's like getting swept away by a flood. But when there is commitment in love, even those powerful forces cannot stop it. Now, of course we know that we live in a broken world and we break our commitments in love all the time. And we also know that the people we love die and love is broken in that regard as well. Love isn't perfect here. And we know that because it's affected by sin and we feel the effects of that sin in our earthly relationships. But the foundation of commitment points us to a greater love in God where the sting of death and sin will be completely removed from love and we'll get to experience love in its fullness without fear of being hurt by it where, where it's never going to disappoint us again and it will never fade away. It will always be there. It'll be like the poem going on and on, growing in its depth. For the moment though, God has given us marriage as an institution that allows us to experience love in relative safely because it's built upon commitment. And it gives us the freedom to experience and to explore love until one day when we're ushered into the presence of God and we get to experience that real and enduring love. Let me close with this. And the band and the prayer teams can make their way up to the stage. Love is powerful. It's much more powerful than we walk around thinking about every day. And I get that this message has been primarily a message for, for married people and couples, but there is good wisdom here that we can glean from this book and from the picture of marriage that God has established on this earth. Wisdom which can positively affect our friendships with our, our friends and our families and with our spouses and with our God. Desire vulnerability, commitment. These are a part of every good relationship to one degree or another. Now hear me out on this. I'm not saying that you should romantically desire someone that is not your spouse. What I'm saying is, if you are in a relationship with somebody, friends, family, coworkers, husband, wife, they should at least know that you want to be in the relationship with them as well in a healthy and God-honoring way. As long as we are willing to take these pieces of wisdom and apply them, being, being active with them and, and participating and growing in love, we are going to be able to experience deeper and more, more fulfilling love in our relationships. 
The question is, are we nurturing and respecting the love that we have in our lives in such a way that it reflects how great love is? Are we nurturing our marriages and promoting them in such a way that they are healthy and vibrant pictures of love? Or are things just on autopilot? And we're just hoping that they continue to go well. Does our relationship with God look like it contains the greatest love that's ever been given to humanity? Or again, are we just going through the motions with him? God created us with the ability to experience amazing love. So we need to be striving for that. The song of songs then is meant to be a marker for us regarding love. Something to strive for in our marriage relationships and in our relationship with God. So that we can experience a deeper love with one another and with him. And so that we can then go out and demonstrate that love to the world and show them that there is a greater love that exists than what they even know of. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the amazing way that you have put together things on this planet, that you have given us something as amazing as love and allowed us to experiencing, experience it. God, we thank you that one day down the road, we are gonna be able to experience love without the effects of sin marring it. And for all of us who have chosen to follow you and believe in the message of your son, God, that you have given us your Holy Spirit where we can have a, a deeper connection with you as a deposit of what we will receive in your presence. God, for now, we pray that you would give us the ability and the power and the wherewithal to work better in our relationships, to do love better here on earth, so that we can point people more towards you and so that we can experience this amazing thing that emanates from you. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.